When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's more traumatizing for a teenage boy than having to pack up his life and move to a new town with his brother and newly divorced mom? Nothing other than the local gang initiation, which in Santa Carla may just involve dropping from a train overpass, racing motorcycles near the cliff, and drinking blood instead of wine. Though we've been engulfed in some, dare I say, toothless vampire entertainment Mm -hmm. in the last few decades, this 80s flick was one of the earliest movies to update the centuries-old story of fanged immortals lusting for blood in the night for the high school set. So grab your vampire comics, call the Frog Brothers, and put on your garlic t-shirt as Tyra Williams and I discuss The Lost Boys from 1987 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Sam are about to discover a secret in California. Santa Carla's crawling with vampires. Stay back! Stay back! I'm your brother, Sammy! Help me! What's happening when you start? My own brother, a blood-sucking vampire! You better give yourself a garlic t-shirt, buddy. Will you eat your mom find out? Has anyone gone crazy here? The Lost Boys. Rated R. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. (laughs) Welcome in, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the 80s Flick Flashbacks. Always good to uh, have another 80s Flick to talk about. And uh, boy, we've got a good one tonight. So 
Before we get started, just to remind you, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I'm still uh, in the process of the eight forgotten 80s flicks, and if you have any suggestions, uh, get, on, get on TikTok or Instagram. It's on both of those, uh, and let me know ones that I may have forgotten so far. Uh, you can also support the podcast. Uh, that's something new we've just started, so you can support the podcast financially uh, for as little as $10 a month or 99 cents a month, so just a little bit helps us for the cost of the website, uh, movie rentals, Zoom, uh, the marketing stuff that we do, it all helps. So, But uh, enough of all that fun stuff, let's jump into today's movie. Let's jump in. And let me introduce my co-host, which this was her pick. Uh, we talked about movies uh, to do, and I was a little shocked when this was at the top of her <laughs> list. But please welcome back my wife, hey, Tyra Williams. <laughs> And she has chosen Lost Boys from 1987. Yes. Uh, so let's just uh, jump right in. When did you see Lost Boys for the very first time? I remember uh, renting it with my friends from Blockbuster and watching it at my <laughs> friend Regina's house. And it was probably a group of six or seven of us um, sitting in her living room with snacks and just like, ready to watch it we didn't know if we were gonna be really scared or what but we were just like "Ooh, this Kiefer Sutherland we just want to look at him and um what's this other guy I don't remember his name Jason Patrick oh yeah the Jason Patrick honey it was just all about looking at these guys and um you know if we were scared oh well but it was the eye candy um but yeah I that's that was it and it was it was fun we probably watched it three or four times <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is probably the product of my sister, who's a few years older than me. Same reason she wanted to see Kiefer Sutherland, Jason <laughs> Patrick. Probably the Corys, even though they were a little younger for, yep. the, for her. But, uh, and of course, the other guys that, you know, the other vampires who yeah. uh, are kind of nameless. The because Corey it, had an earring, man, so that, oh, was, yeah, yeah. that was something to see. Yeah, so uh, I know she wanted to see it, so I'm pretty sure I saw this as a rental I don't know if this was a family movie that we watched as a family, <laughs> maybe just something me and my sister watched together. Uh, you know, my parents went out and we were, you know, left alone or whatever. So, but yeah, but I remember seeing on video and that's, that's how I was introduced to it. So how long had it been since you'd seen it before rewatching it for the podcast? I can't recall seeing it since <laughs> since it came out <laughs> yeah for those of you who don't know Tyra's not one that rewatches movies a whole lot and no. even if she does rewatch it she tends to not remember uh -uh. anything that happened the first time she watched it so <laughs> yeah I don't I can't say that I've watched it in its entirety mm -hmm. again I've maybe seen bits and pieces and then I'll just go ahead and turn it um, you know like well, I guess we'll get to it later, but my favorite scene, like if it's near the favorite part, then I would, I'll sit and watch it, and then after mm. that, I'm on to the next thing, so, but yeah. Yeah, I rewatched this one a few years ago, because I think we were talking about it. I I remember it came up on my Facebook memories, I think, uh, a couple of months ago, that there was, and I think it was during the summertime, that some theater, when we were living in Jacksonville, was doing like a re-showing of uh -huh. it, and I think this was like right around the, or right before the pandemic, or maybe during the pandemic, just trying to get some business or whatever. Um, and I was like, oh man, I haven't seen Lost Boys in a long time. Yeah. And I think it was on one of the cable channels or one of the streaming services we had. And you may have started it with me and uh -huh. then, and the way we didn't finish it. Cause nope. I think we started it, we got like 30 minutes in and then 
we had to deal with Hannah or something. And so I finished watching it later. I had to watch it by myself. But uh, it was fun rewatching it uh, yesterday to really watch it from <laughs> beginning to end again. Uh, a lot of fun. So ready to talk about how this movie came about, story origin and oh, pre-production. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, here we go. A March 5th, 1985 variety news item announced that the independent production company Producers Sales Organization bought first-time screenwriters Janice Fisher and James Jeremiah's Lost Boys script for $400,000 on February 20th, 1986. The original screenplay was originally about a bunch of Goonie-type 5th and 6th grade kid vampires, uh-huh. with the Frog Brothers being chubby 8-year-old Cub Scouts. Lord, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Star was a boy instead of a love interest. The, f- the original inspiration came from James, who was caught up on the notion that Peter Pan could fly visited Wendy and her brothers at night and never grew old. The simple notion that Peter Pan was a vampire was the genesis for the story. In the first draft of the script, the character of David was originally named Peter, and other characters also had names from the Peter Pan story. In the final draft, many name changes were made, but originally the two brothers were Michael and John, which was later changed to Sam, and the mother's name was Wendy. The most obvious nod to the Pan story is the dog, Nanook, inspired by the character Nana the dog. The grandfather character was never part of the original story. The film was actually originally set to be directed by Richard Donner, since the original screenplay was modeled on Donner's recent hit, The Goonies, from 1985. When Donner committed to direct Lethal Weapon instead, Joel Schumacher, who had just directed St. Elmo's Fire, was approached to direct the film. Hmm. Donner eventually received credit as an executive producer. Schumacher insisted on making the film sexier and more adult, bringing on screenwriter Jeff Boehm to retool the script and raise the ages of the characters. So a little bit about Joel Schumacher, Schumacher, because we haven't really covered one of his movies before. Uh, He first actually entered filmmaking as a production and costume designer before gaining writing credits on Car Wash, Sparkle, and The Wiz. All right now. Yeah. Schumacher received little attention for his first theatrically released films, The Incredible Shrinking Woman in 1981 and DC Cab in 1983, but rose to prominence after directing St. Elmo's Fire in 85, of course, The Lost Boys, and The Client in 1994. Okay. Schumacher was probably most known, however, for replacing Tim Burton as director of the Batman franchise in 95 with the uh, less inferior, or the more inferior sequels, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. But Schumacher was a great director. I mean, he, he definitely brought his style mm-hmm. uh, to this movie, and as he does. I was watching an interview with Kiefer Sutherland and Jason Patrick, you know, taking questions about the movie, and they were asking about Joel Schumacher. Of course, he passed away a couple of years ago, and they were just saying that he he was very much about the visual, and so all the costumes and things in the movie, he was very much involved in, and that's why they were talking about, it really doesn't, it's really not dated. When you look at the vampires, <clears throat> the vampire characters, they don't look 80s, like it doesn't. It became 80s because people wanted to model after them once the movie came out. But really, Sam, the younger brother, is the only really 80s. I know all the patterns and yeah. colors and stuff that he wears. Oh, Because one time God. you're like, you're like, what is he wearing? Yeah. Why he have two, he's got one pattern on his shirt and a totally different pattern on, on his jacket. jacket. Like, what the heck like, yeah, are you well, doing, man? Welcome to the 80s. Uh, but he had such an eye for fashion that he really made the yeah, vampires seem very timeless. Like rockers yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. and you know that cult you know santa santa carla uh we'll talk a little bit about here in a minute um really 
had seemed to have its own look and its own style. The punk rock and the you know the rock and rock and yeah skaters and surfers like that whole look and aesthetic uh, to that town, which you know made it kind of how it was. But and now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture-themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Anyway, so we'll talk a little about casting. So we'll start with Jason Patrick as Michael. Jason Patrick was born in New York City. Uh, the son of Academy Award nominated actor and Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Jason Miller and actress Linda Miller. And his ne- maternal grandfather was actor comedian Jackie Gleason, which I did not know until no doing way. this. The yeah. Honeymooners. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, he was cast in the television drama Tough Love with Bruce Dern in 85. The following year, Patrick was cast in Solar Babies alongside Peter DeLuise, Jamie Gertz, Lucas Haas, and Adrian Pazdar. I think I've seen Solar Babies, but it was not very good (laughs) so but a lot of the weight of the lost boys lies on the shoulders of patrick and his performance as the tormented michael as he comes to terms with becoming a vampire and director joel schumacher immediately saw something in the young and relatively unknown actor when casting getting patrick to sign on would prove to be no easy task as patrick continually turned down the offer in the 2004 documentary the lost boys a retrospective Schumacher revealed that he met with Patrick pretty much every day for six weeks and tried to convince him that the movie wouldn't be like other exploitative horror films. Patrick finally relented and agreed to sign on by Schumacher's vision and his promise to allow the cast a lot of quote-unquote creative input in making the film. This was good news for Schumacher because he didn't have a second choice lined up. And according to Kiefer Sutherland, Patrick was very instrumental in adapting the script with Schumacher and shaping the film, which they talked about that a little bit in the uh, interview as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Because the guy asked why Jason Patrick, said, why did you not want to take it? He said, I didn't want to wear fangs and fly around like a vampire. He said, that just didn't appeal to him. But he said, with being a 19-year-old young actor, for the director to come and say, I want to give you some input, or allow you to have some input and be part of the creative process yeah, that, that was very attractive to him uh-huh. as, a, as a young actor. So uh, so he signed on. And they talked about how he really helped develop the brotherhood and the family dynamics of the story 
so that it wasn't so much about the vampire story. Like, mm-hmm. and it really is kind of two, mm-hmm. two, two stories going on. The family, you know, a new family. They're separated from, you know, being separated from their father, going through a divorce, new town, all those dynamics, and then the vampire on the side. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I that's pretty cool because I noticed is it's very, it translates very well how, um the brothers are close mm-hmm. like even you know in the opening scenes where they're they're chasing each other you know typical hey come back here or whatever they're chasing each other through the house they're exploring the house and you know in that that one scene when they open the doors mm-hmm. and uh the younger brothers are Same, under yeah. like near his neck and yeah. he's just kind of like laughing or whatever it's right. just like they're they're the camaraderie it's just like mm-hmm. they're close even though there's definitely an age gap, oh yeah, they're yeah. still they're still cool, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it, that translates really well that they're just really cool brothers. Yeah, and Jason Packer talked about that, saying that he spent a lot of time with Corey Haim to build that bond of brothers because he mm-hmm. wanted them, he wanted to come across on screen that mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. for that dynamic to work of like I'm, you know, uh, I'm not a vampire, Sam, I'm your brother. Like that line right. has weight because you you see early on mm-hmm. the closeness that they have. Yeah, they get on each other's nerves and stuff, but there's still a, a fondness that yep. they have towards each other. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so next on the list we got Jamie Gertz as Star. Gertz was born in Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Give it up for Chi Town. <laughs> and lived in the suburb of Glenview. Mm-hmm. You know where that is. Mm-hmm. She attended public schools, graduating from Maine East High School. You know where that is? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I have an idea. Okay. It's been a while. So. Okay. She was discovered in a nationwide talent search by Norman Lear and studied drama wow. at NYU. Mm-hmm. As a child actor, Gertz was in one episode of Different Strokes along with Andrew Dice Clay, of all people. Wow. She also had a recurring role on The Facts of Life as Blair's friend and fellow schoolmate Boots St. Clair. (laughs) Gertz made her film debut in the 1981 romance film Endless Love, which was followed by a co-starring role in the 1982 TV sitcom Square Pegs. Gertz is known for early roles in the films Crossroads in 86 with Ralph Macchio, Less Than Zero in 87 with Robert Downey Jr., and Quicksilver in 86 with Kevin Bacon. Schumacher envisioned the character of Star as being a waifish blonde, similar to Meg Ryan, but he was convinced by Jason Patrick to consider Jamie Gertz, who had just worked with Patrick in Solar Babies. Schumacher was impressed, but only at Patrick's insistence that he finally cast Gertz. So, which was fine. She was mm-hmm. a fine actress for that role. She really didn't have a whole lot to do. The girl turning yes. into the vampire. Yes. Yeah, she didn't do much. At yeah, all. I mean. She was there for him to kind of chase after, but that's really about it. She didn't. She had a few She's scenes. Just the lure. Yeah. 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 So next we have Corey Haim as Sam. Mm-hmm. Corey appeared in 26 episodes of the early 80s Canadian series The Edison Twins. He broke into the film industry in 1984, playing a young child caught up in a family war in the movie Firstborn. The following year, he appeared in the comedies Secret Admirer in '85 and Murphy's Romance in 85 as well, and had the leading role in the Stephen King werewolf film Silver Bullet, all those in 85. Wow. <laughs> Lucas was made in 86, in which he starred alongside Cary Green and Wyona Ryder, showing his acting abilities with praise, coming particularly from Roger Ebert. So, uh, But he was good as Sam, mm-hmm. so didn't really talk much about how he was cast or anybody else that was up for that same role. Uh, and then talk about Corey Haim, you got to talk about Corey Feldman as Edgar Frog. 
Uh, Feldman began his career in guest starring roles on television series such as Mork and Mindy, Alice, and Eight is Enough before landing a regular part on the sitcom The Bad News Bears in 1979, which I had no idea that was its own TV show. Yeah. Yeah. I like I have like a, a vague memory, but mm. I don't remember. In the same year, Feldman made his big screen debut in Time After Time. Over the next few years, Feldman continued making guest appearances in many television shows and in 81, Feldman supplied, supplied the voice of young Copper in Disney's The Fox and the Hound. He was also in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, uh, as the young Tommy Jarvis, which I just watched uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, he reprised that role for Friday the 13th, A New Beginning in 85. Feldman then began a series of appearances in blockbuster films such as Gremlins in 84, Goonies in 85, Stand By Me in 86, and The Burbs in 89. But Corey Feldman was almost not in this movie. Hmm. At the time, Corey struggled with drug abuse and showed up to work coming down from a cocaine binge. Wow. Director Schumacher was very upset with Corey that he kept dozing off and was unable to continue filming, so he fired him, but hired him back the next day after Corey apologized and swore to come to work prepared from then on, which How he did. How old was he? Uh, 14 or 15. I think we talked about it. I think him and, him and Haim are about the same age. Yeah. So, this was Corey Haim and Corey Feldman's first film together, which marked the start of a popular 80s trend, The Two Corys, in which Feldman and Haim starred together in a number of teenage films like License to Drive in 88 and Dream a Little Dream in 1989. Seen any of those? Don't sound familiar at all. Oh man, those are two of my favorites. License to Drive. (laughs) Dream a Little Dream has not aged as well, but that was one I really enjoyed Mm. when I was younger body swapping movie uh, oh, one of the okay. forgotten 80s flicks so go back and check it out alright so now uh, to one you're probably more excited about Kiefer Sutherland as <laughs> David Powers Kiefer was born in London England to Canadian actors Shirley Douglas and of course Donald Sutherland who moved to California short, shortly after his birth Sutherland made his screen debut in 1983's Max Dugan Returns in which his father Donald Sutherland also starred after receiving critical acclaim for the role as Donald Campbell in the Canadian film The Bay Boy in 1985, Sutherland moved to Hollywood. He played a silent supporting character in the crime thriller at close range in 86, as well as the bullying gang leader Ace in Rob Reiner's coming-of-age hit Stand By Me. After The Lost Boys, he appeared in Promised Land in 88 with Meg Ryan and the Western film Young Guns in 1988 with Emilio Estevez and Lou Diamond Phillips, which we covered already. Great one to go back. Uh, so after seeing Kiefer's portrayal of Tim in, a, in At Close Range, Schumacher arranged a reading with him at which they got, on, got along very well. Sutherland had just completed work on Stand By Me when he was offered the role of David. Schumacher said Sutherland can do almost anything. He's a born character actor. You can see it in The Lost Boys. He has the least amount of dialogue in the movie, but his presence is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I thought this was fun. David was initially supposed to have a very different look. According to the actor, Schumacher wanted David to have long blonde hair, but this made Sutherland look like the wrestler Ric Flair, and he wasn't really <laughs> fond of the appearance. So on the first day on set, Sutherland had the makeup team trim his hair short on the top and sides to make him look more like Billy Idol, who he said was really cool at the time. And even though Schumacher wasn't pleased at first, Sutherland said he and the director laughed about it for years. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the long hair probably would have not... Translated as well. So, Mm-mm. going right down the list, Diane Weist as Lucy, the mom. Mm. 
Her original ambition was to be a ballerina, but she was bitten by acting bug after some stage work, most notably playing Desmonda to James Earl Jones's Othello mm. on Broadway. She made her film debut in 1980, but did not make a name for herself until her performance as Emma, a prostitute during the 30s Depression in Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo in 85. Allen was so impressed by Weiss' acting ability that he, ha- that he has directed her on four more occasions since. Schumacher was surprised when Diane Weiss, who was his first choice, accepted the role as she had just recently won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Hannah and Her Sisters. She followed up her role in Lost Boys with Bright Lights Big City in 88 alongside Kiefer Sutherland again and Michael J. Fox before stealing the show from the likes of Steve Martin, Mary Steenburgen, Jason Robards, Keanu Reeves, and Martha Plimpton in Ron Howard's Parenthood in 1985. So she is... uh, Probably one of the best moms on screen, especially from the 80s. Uh, if Mo and Max from Buzz in the Tower are listening, I know they agree with that because they mention her in almost every episode, especially when they talk about moms in the 80s. So, Wow. All right, and then we'll do some quick on these last few because uh, these are the main characters we're trying to cover, but I want to mention people that I know had some other uh, acting roles outside of this movie. So... Tyra was shocked with this one, but Edward Herman as Max. Yes! Herman's film career began in the mid-1970s. In 1982, he portrayed President Roosevelt for the second time on film in Annie. Mm -hmm. Among Herman's better-known roles include one of the characters in the film within the film in Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo, the philandering husband of Goldie Hawn's character in Overboard in 87, and, of course, the grandfather in the TV show, Gilmore, Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and it was so funny because he's so young in this movie. Yeah. And every once in a while you can hear his voice. You know, it's so funny how as you age, your voice changes. But mm-hmm. you, it, you could hear the granddad in Gilmore Girls. You could yeah. just hear his his tone every once in a while. It's like, oh, my God, it is him. Mm-hmm. Like, if you close your eyes, it is him. <laughs> it is funny because we watched Gilmore Girls recently. And even though, I mean, that's the most recent thing he's been in but then to watch him in this he is kind of thin you know he's not young right right but when they have him in like the 80s shirt and like he's he's trying to look cool as uh-huh. the owner of the video store it's like man it's just it's amazing that was him back then it was just yeah. funny so and then uh, my favorite character of the whole movie uh bernard hughes as grandpa uh <laughs> hughes has played more than 400 theater roles are on stage wow on screen, he appeared in such films as Tron in 82, Maxie in 85, Doc Hollywood, one of my favorites in 1991, and the big success Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit from 1993. Uh, so I thought he was great. He's probably one of my, like I said, he's my I favorite. Have yeah. And my favorite line of his is uh, he's like, about my TV guide, if the little sticker is curling, don't pull it off, it messes up the cover. It's like, so you have a TV. No, no, I have a TV guy. I don't, so I don't, don't have to have, have a TV. TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, that's not working for me, Pop, right, Grandpa. <laughs> right. But as a kid of the 80s, that is totally something your your grandparents would have. Mm-hmm. It's like they're not going to have a TV. They'll just read the TV guide. So. Right, read a book. <laughs> uh, yeah, a few honorable mentions. Uh, in the opening credits, it reads, Introducing Alexander Winter as Marco. Uh, we know Alex Winter for playing Bill in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, uh, but this was not his first film. His first movie was actually Death, Death Wish Three in 1985. But he was one of the he was the blonde uh, Marco of the uh, vampires, okay. the blonde. Mm-hmm. Tyra's not a big Bill and Ted 
nah. fan. Mm-mm. Really, I'm not either, but don't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, I saw the name, and I thought it was actually someone else, but then when I saw her on the on the movie, I was like, oh, that's what it is. Though most of Kelly Jo Minter's scenes are deleted from the film, the only true appearance she makes is over Lucy's shoulder in the video store. She still received billing in the film's opening credits. You may not know the name Kelly Jo Minter, but she's better known for her roles in Summer School in 87, which we did a couple of years ago, and she was also in Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child in 89. Mm-hmm. You would have to see her picture to recognize her because she's, she's barely seen. She's like mm-hmm. basically in the background, but I did watch the deleted scenes uh, without you, I'm sorry. That's okay. But I watched it yesterday. Uh, and there is a scene where she actually has some dialogue with Diane Weist in the okay. video store. And it's like, oh yeah, I totally remember her from uh, summer school. That's probably what I'm knowing most for. But uh, interesting that she did get, you know, cut. Most her scenes were cut from the final film, but she does her name does appear early in the credits. Okay. So. All right, it's time to have some fun. Let's talk about iconic or favorite scene. So iconic scene. So. If someone said Lost Boys, what's the first scene that would pop in your head? Oh my gosh, uh, them hanging upside down, sleeping oh, in the yeah. cave. That's like <laughs> the first thing, um, which is always the scene that, like, if it's on, that's that would be the scene I would sit for. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. When the Frog Brothers are, you know, they're all they're in the cave, but mm-hmm. when they when the camera pans up and they're hanging upside down with their arms crossed and mm-hmm. asleep. And it's like they show they keep they show Kiefer a couple times. It's like, is he sleep? Does he know they're there, or mm-hmm. is he really sleep, or is he just waiting to see right. what they're gonna do? Because you just you know it's like you're you're kind of like waiting to see what's gonna happen because yeah. these goofy kids are coming in here yeah. to slay vampires. Because we talked about it yesterday. Watching it is like they they're so loud coming. Yeah. They're in the in the cave before they even get yeah. to the you know he's a. It is one big coffin or whatever. Yeah, I, right. Know, Corey right. Feldman's voice in this makes me laugh. He's, <laughs> he's trying to sound all tough and everything. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a minute. But uh, the voice he uses in this kind of irritates me some. But but yeah, but that scene. And then uh, talking about that scene, because I was going to bring it up later. Uh, I remember seeing this the first time I saw it. But now watching it on HD, it's even more pronounced. But right before Corey Feldman stabs Marco, mm-hmm. he holds the stake and you can tell it's a fake stake because <laughs> you can see the lines where it's supposed to, you know, it's supposed to like retract uh-huh. uh, when he, when he, but when even, he touches yeah, him, supposed but even to. though that is funny because from that angle, you would like, you would think they would have shot that with a regular stake because you don't see him stab him from that angle. So I'm concerned. It's funny that how he funny. used that yeah. one prop, but anyway, but that, that scene has always jumped out at me mm. when, you know, like when I think of the Lost Boys, I think about that fake steak oh, wow. every time. Fake steak. <laughs> yeah. So that, that scene is the one that I think of. Yeah. And then the other one, um, earlier in the movie, when they leave the, um, was that a concert or whatever? Mm-hmm. And they're flying back to the cave. It's like, are they really flying? Oh, they were on their motorcycles or something, but they're going back to the cave. So I always think about them going back to the cave so whenever i think about lost boys it's always the cave the entrance to the cave mm-hmm. is like always the big thing oh yeah for me. the flying um, the flying and the, scenes and the flying like are yeah. they really flying or like because you never see them flying right you just right. here you know it's alluded that mm-hmm. they're flying you know well the funny thing is the the point of view flying scenes were not actually in the original script like that was because of budget cuts because it would have cost so much more money to see them to fly. actually see them <laughs> flying 
because it's you know that's yeah. extra crew that's green oh, screen yeah. all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff so they came with the idea of using the pov mm-hmm. of them flying yeah. which i thought made it even better yeah because um, the noise is like wow you see you feel like you're flying with them yeah. yeah and another fun fact is that the the scene the the flying scenes in the clouds i guess during the back half of the love scene mm-hmm. that is all unused footage from top gun that they were able to get from the studio wow. <laughs> once again budget cuts hey hey so, use what you can exactly right? <laughs> uh so any other any other scenes for you like iconic scenes um i don't know that it would be iconic but the um oh when they're in the church getting the holy water doing yeah. the baby's <laughs> baptism that's like <laughs> yeah. and the preacher the priest is just standing there, all the people are just kind of looking like what mm-hmm. do y'all do it yeah it's funny because when I, I was pulling this up on imdb it listed as a horror comedy and i don't really think of it as much as a comedy as i do horror but it is very funny there's v- mm-hmm. definitely very comic elements the frog brothers themselves yeah, are kind of like the comic yeah, so and sam are kind of the comic relief grandpa's definitely grandpa's the, com- funny, the comic yeah. relief but yeah that scene of them getting the holy water from the church during the baptism and, is pretty funny um are we still on scenes yeah okay so another one um that i think it's cool too is when uh the uh the store owner comes to the house for the date and the Frog Brothers are also there for the date. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah. For dinner. Yeah, Max. And yeah. Um, they're trying to test him to yep. see if he's a vampire and mm-hmm. nothing is working. Right, right. The dog isn't even barking at him. Yeah. Like nothing's working. And then later in the movie where he says, you don't invite a vampire mm-hmm. into your home. Because it's like, okay, so if you invite him, it doesn't work. Right. Because they're, they're, pow- they're powerless to, right. re- to reveal So it was his- like. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's so cool. You mm-hmm. know, but nothing is working. He's like, okay, come on. What is going on here? <laughs> Just that whole setup in the movie, like, yeah. it doesn't work. You don't, so you, you don't suspect him at all. Yeah, because you even asked the question when we were watching it, because they, they showed, oh, when Max is outside of his house and the little bat kite mm-hmm. falls mm-hmm. down and you hear... David and the other vampires, you know they're around, and he just makes this look, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought I thought he was the bat, the main villain. I said, yeah. oh, he is. That's just one of those little red herring scenes to make you think, well, you know, redirect yeah. you to think, oh, he must not be. They're after him, too. Yeah, you know? but, but it's evident, especially the rewatch, when they come into the video store and he first meets uh, Lucy, that, that there's this eye contact he's making with them, right. and they're kind of, you know, kind of brushing him off. Mm-hmm. That that there they definitely have uh, there's a history there, right. but you're not really sure what that history is just yet. But it's a little more telling when you rewatch it to see that he definitely is trying to give them signals like, "Hey, don't blow my cover." Right. But for me, iconic scenes. I think you know you've kind of hit on them. Uh, it's hard to not talk about this scene, even though it kind of surprised you. Uh, but we got to talk about the boardwalk with the topless sax player. Ew. Tim Capella. That was so disgusting. Who was Tina Turner's sax player. Yeah, whatever. Singing I Still Believe. Uh, but here's my fun fact. Jason Patrick told the convention crowd that he actually helped oil up Tim Capella for that performance. Who was Jason Patrick? The main guy. Michael. The guy that played Michael. <laughs> the actor that played Michael in the movie. The brother. The older brother. He got to oil up. Yes. The man. He he helped he helped oil up Tim Capella. Man, he for had on way too much oil. <laughs> and oh my god, put on a shirt because you were not giving it to the people, man. You haven't seen all the memes that have been out for years it says, you know, the 
nobody memes. That like it says like nobody is blanking. Uh-huh. It's blanking. It says uh, some executive. You know what this movie needs and has a picture of Tim Capella. <laughs> so like, what Lost no. Boys needs needs this scene right here. But yeah, so I mean that. But that is now truly iconic. And even when I was going looking at the the uh, trailers for the movie, uh-huh. that scene is in almost all the trailers. So. <laughs> Uh, and then the other iconic scene for me is, of course, when the vampires make Michael hallucinate that his Chinese rice has turned to maggots. Ah, uh, yes, that was that was funny. Yeah, they're playing with them. Yeah, and the noodles are worms. And then so. the wine is wine and not blood. Yeah. <laughs> but that mean, but that was smart. I mean, that was way to that was way to trick him into thinking. Yeah. When she said, "Don't drink it, Michael. It's blood." He's like, "Yeah, blood. Whatever." Because I've been fooled too many two other times already. Yeah, y'all messing uh, with me. Mm-hmm. But little tip: uh, maggots do not move on their own. So to make the maggots move, they had a stagehand squirt lemon juice on them to make them move. Are those the maggots for those real? Those are real maggots. Ew. Not that he ate, but just for no, that I know, but shot. Ew. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to hold that. <laughs> <laughs> so so those are iconic scenes. What about favorite scenes? Do you have a favorite oh, scene? my favorite scene. Yes. Okay. So one of my favorite scenes is later in the movie when, they're, when they've uh, uh, waiting on the, the vampires to come to the house mm-hmm. and the um you know it's like the frogbirds they got this plan but they don't really know if it's gonna work right <laughs> they have no so idea what they're doing when they get the one vampire in the bathroom and he falls into the tub oh with yeah the garlic and the holy, holy water, water yeah and how he keep he lifts up one time and his face is one thing and he goes back in the water and mm-hmm. he lifts up again and it's just like a skeleton face mm-hmm. and, but it was just so funny to see how his body kept changing but how they got him to fall into that tub mm-hmm. and oh my god it worked oh you know it's mm-hmm. just like that is just funny that that's funny to me that was oh, funny yeah, yeah. to me it wasn't scary it was well that funny. was in the nook because the nook actually pushed him into the, dog, the tub right. yeah, they, they, didn't they splashed the water on his face right and it and burned then, his face and then the dog pushed, pushed hopped pushed up on his legs and pushed him yeah. Yeah, yeah but that was just really funny to me um another scene is i guess when the boys first get to grandpa's house Mm-hmm. And they open up his. Um, He's going over the rules. His room with all his uh, stuffed animals. Yeah, his and, taxidermy. Um, his taxidermy. And he, the grandpa says, We have rules. Mm-hmm. And he takes them in the kitchen and he opens up the refrigerator. And there's a section of the fridge that he has uh, it's labeled put a old sign fart. on it that says Old Fart. Yeah. So it's like, Those are his snacks, right? Right. right. And so when he's telling them what he has. Um, he says these double thick Oreos are mine. It's like double thick Oreos, and I was like, "Did they have double stuff back then? And why did he call them double thick?" Right, right. <laughs> so that was funny. Like, oh, I got those over there on the table. Have double thick? Have double stuff Oreos been around that long? That was just funny to me. Um, and then another uh, scene when um, they finally get key. Um, Kiefer, you mm-hmm. know, me and character names, just not gonna work. Yeah, no. But when they get Kiefer and he's dying, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of Kiefer Sutherland from 24, oh, you yeah. know. And when, I was like, wow, his dying face looks like his face now, like his current <laughs> old man face. Oh, was he has his, yeah, the, when he turns to the, the vampire face. Yeah, yeah, it was just funny, like, wow, that's how he looks like now in real life. That mm. was funny. It just looked like it aged them, which mm-hmm. I guess when a vampire is dying, they they kind of start to look like their real age and then before and then death because they they're so old they mm-hmm. don't age, you know. But that was cool to me. Um, but I didn't. I guess yeah, maybe that's it um, as far as scenes that I super super like. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And then I do like how the brothers, how he's reading that comic book and realizing, oh, my God, this is what's happening to my, my big brother. Mm-hmm. And he's like, stay away from me, stay away from me. And the brother's like, hey, help me. Mm-hmm. I need help. I need help. You know, and he's like, oh, OK, my brother's really not going to eat me. He's not going to he's not going <laughs> to bite me. You know, <laughs> he's right. not going to try to kill me or turn me into a vampire. I need to help my brother because at the end of the day, you know, this is my brother. I love him. He loves me. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to fight this. So let me go get the Frog Brothers and get some help, you know. Um, and I thought, oh, another funny part you said, not really a comedy, but it is kind of right, funny. Right. Was when mom is on a date. Oh, yeah. With the guy. <laughs> and. Michael Sam is screaming on the phone. Yeah, but he Michael is he's getting flying. his 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 he's his body is starting to learn how to fly and right. he's like hanging out the window yep. screaming, Help me, help me. And Sam is like, Mom, you gotta come home, you gotta come home. Mm-hmm. And when she gets there, everything seems all normal. Yeah, she's yeah. pissed. You know, she's mad. But it was just funny with him flying to try to hang on to the window. Mm-hmm. And he's telling Sam to let him back in. <laughs> Sam's like, nope, not right, doing it. Right. And he's always throwing up the cross thing yeah. with his fingers like every time. Like that little cross go do something right. to somebody. Right. <laughs> oh, man, that was funny. But yeah, yeah even Diane Weiss leaving like, oh, my gosh, I'm coming right now. I'm coming right now. And then she runs out like, you know, uh, Max doesn't know that she's leaving until he sees her drive off or whatever. Right. So uh, that was that was a good scene. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a lot of good scenes, a lot of funny scenes uh, in the movie. Uh, going back to, I wonder, I don't know if I had this on my notes, but they were talking about it. On the interview, but going back to the cave when they kill Marco, ah, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, Kiefer is trying to grab him. They're coming out of the cave, and of course mm-hmm. they pull his hand into the sunlight, and he starts to burn. And of course, there's that shot of Kiefer's face and the teardrop. Uh-huh. That teardrop was not his acting. So the th- contact lenses they had to wear, they can only have in for like nine minutes. Or will actually it it pulls all the liquid out of the eye socket and will actually damage their eyes. So he said during that scene he was right about the eight minute mark, and just as they were at that scene happened, it just squeezed the last little bit of water out of his eye and dripped down his face. So he was like, "Yeah, it, that wasn't so much great acting as just great timing." So, hey. so which I thought was pretty fantastic. Yeah. So. yeah. And now these messages. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever. 
like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gag Me with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! All right, we'll we'll, uh, talk about a few trivia notes here, uh, a little behind-the-scenes stuff, then maybe trigger some other scenes we can talk about as well. So Santa Cruz is the actual city uh, where Santa Carla takes place. It was once plagued with the reputation of being the murder capital of the world, as it says in the movie, Mm. because of a series of very brutal murders by three different very disturbed men in the early 70s. Because of John Lindley Frazier, Herbert Mullen, and Edmund Kemper, Santa Cruz endured 28 murder, murders over a 30-month period between 1970 and 1973. Mm. Several thousand local residents answered the casting call for family types, street people, punks, surfers, roller skaters, and one quote-unquote brain-dead hippie. Some 2,000 of the applicants were signed for several nights' work on what was the largest film production ever brought to the area at that time. Now, we didn't bringing that up, every time they're at the comic book store... Mm-hmm. There are two people that they're sleeping, yes, and we could yes. not figure out if those were real people or dummies. Like, are those the boys' parents or what? Like, <laughs> the frog, oh my god, Mr. Mrs. Frog, this Mr. Mrs. Frog. Yes, yeah, I forgot all about them. Yes, right, because they're sitting there leaning on each other. Yeah, like they're with sleep, sunglasses uh, on. by the TV set. Yeah, yeah, and we're like, at first was like, are those mannequins? Yeah, we're like, is that, are that real? And then like the next day, they were in the same. So they got to be dummies. But why would you have two dummies when they're sleeping? But anyway. Speaking of the comic book store, Atlantis Fantasy World Comic Book Shop is where Sam meets the eccentric Frog Brothers, which is actually located in downtown Santa Cruz, not on the boardwalk, as it appears in the film. A fixture in Santa Cruz for more than 40 years, Atlantis Fantasy World relocated after the Loma Prieta earthquake of 89 destroyed the original shop, but shop owner Joe Ferreira, who appeared as an extra in the film, still runs the store at its Cedar Street location. So that was a real comic book store, which that was cool. Yeah, but were the people real? We still don't know. We still don't know. <laughs> still don't know. <laughs> One day I'll, I'll watch it with commentary and maybe it'll tell us. So, so. fun. Uh, according to Corey Feldman, Joel Schumacher wanted his character to resemble action stars of the day, and he told him to rent Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris films. There's also why he wore the headband bandana like Rambo. <laughs> uh, I thought it was great. Sutherland and the actors who played the other motorcycle-riding vampires did their own stunt work during production. And though this makes, for all the, makes all the classic motorcycle scenes look even more authentic, there were some drawbacks, like the time Sutherland broke his wrist mm. trying to oppress a girl walking along the Santa Cruz boardwalk. Uh, he shared the story and explained that he performed a wheelie in an attempt to show off, but by doing so he failed to notice a train track. Upon hitting the obstacle, the actor was thrown off the bike and broke his right wrist in three places. Wow. Uh, a special cast was created for Sutherland, he said, by one of the surfboard makers there in Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. made a, like a very thin mm-hmm. uh, cast for him. Uh, but he, <laughs> So he had to start riding a bike with the brake and clutch on the left side because of his injured wrist. <laughs> and he had to wear gloves for other scenes so that you couldn't tell. He had the cast on. Hey. But he said what was funny was when that happened, Jamie Gertz wasn't there. So the next scene, the next day they had to do the scene of her riding on the back of the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And she looked and she's like, why, why are you not using your hand 
to you know break and clutch and he said oh because it's broken and she said have you done this before he said we're about to find out and he took off and he said he just remembered her screaming her head off the whole time they were going down the street so but yeah a few more things the bridge i thought this was cool the bridge sequence Mm -hmm. foreshadows the order in which the lost boys die marco falls first paul second Dwayne third and david last Mm, okay so I thought that was cool. And then I did notice this watching it, especially when they came out of the cave uh, after they killed Marco. In the documentary Bloodsucking Cinema, Corey Haim said that all the blood, the fake blood they used, had glitter in it to give it a shimmering effect and was actually slimier than other fake blood he had used in other movies. Mm. Um, and then the characters in the movie say the name Michael approximately 118 times. So, which I thought was pretty accurate because they do say Michael a lot in this movie. Mm. And then when I heard the story about Jason Patrick helping with the script, like he wanted his name to be very pronounced in the movie, maybe. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Alternate ending, as we're wrapping things up, uh, this was interesting. The movie didn't originally end on a joke, which was, of course, Grandpa saying, the only thing I didn't like about Santa Clara was all the damn vampires. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after the scene with Grandpa, the refrigerator was supposed to cut to a mural on a wall made in the early 1900s with Max in it looking exactly the same as he did today. All of this appeared in an early draft of the script, but ultimately was never filmed. There were several deleted scenes that you can find on YouTube that I watched. None of them really gave any more insight to the movie. Uh, they were really more just, they were very short scenes that really didn't say a whole lot, I don't think, but um, I have to go back and watch them. But nothing, none of them stood out to me as like being something really that big but that scene wasn't ever filmed it was just in the script and it was kind of like uh i think the mural they said was max overlooking a bunch of young boys as being like the original the first group of lost Mm -hmm. boys that he was over so let's talk about box office and sequels the lost boys was released on july 31st 1987 debuted in second place behind the living daylights which also debuted in theaters that same week it went on to gross a domestic total of over $32 million against an $8.5 million, bu- million dollar budget. The Lost Boys did well in theaters, but was a huge hit on home video, prompting producer Richard Donner and Warner Brothers to look at the possibility of a sequel. Director Joel Schumacher, who had been the one to propose the idea of the vampire sleeping in a ruined hotel that had crumbled in the San Andreas Fault, initially suggested a prequel set during the earthquake of 1906. When that didn't fly, he insisted a proposed Lost Girls movie with quote-unquote Drew Barrymore and Rosanna Arquette on motorcycles, end Mm -hmm. quote. (laughs) So it kind of makes sense because if you remember, David is impaled on a pair of antlers but doesn't disintegrate like the other vampires. Mm -hmm. Despite what Max later says, he is not really dead. This was intended to be picked up with the sequel, The Lost Girls, which was scripted but never made. Oh, wow. And... But then in the Wildstorm Comics miniseries, The Lost Boys, Reign of the Frogs, that came out in 2008, it helped bridge the 20-year gap between the films. It implied that David not only survived the impaling, but went on to create Shane, the head vampire in The Lost Boys, The Tribe sequel in 2008. Yeah, I have not seen either of the sequels. They both went pretty much direct-to-video, and they both came out in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really interested (laughs) <laughs> I did. I thought the the prequel the prequel idea was interesting. The mm-hmm. Lost Girls is a little bit more interesting because that would have been interesting to have you know kind of like the female side of 
right. the Lost Boys mm-hmm. with uh, David re- reprising his role uh, or coming back for that sequel would have been interesting. So, what could have been? Uh, critical reception, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 75% on the tomato meter with an 85% audience score, whereas IMDb has 7.2 out of 10 with the fans and a 63 on Metacritic. So where does this fall for you, is it? Um, 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10? Uh, probably a 9. <laughs> yeah. For me. I mean, okay. you know, it's my kind of movie, so. Yeah. Um, Carky enough, not super scary. Um, you know. Eh. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not, it, it, it has a few gory moments. I think the goriest part is probably when they kill the bikers or the, we, they kill the. Oh, um, the police officer. He gets snatched up. That's well, he gets snatched up. Really gory. The goriest part when the, the, uh, the punk guys at the, at the bonfire. Yeah. When they're trying to get Michael to have uh-huh. his first kill, like that's yeah. that, and then of course the end. But yeah. even that, even the end, like their way, the like the the one vampire that goes down in the in the uh, holy water and the garlic mm-hmm. water, and the other one that gets shot with the arrow in the stereo, yeah, um, and then the blood when they kill Marco. Um, but yeah, it's not really super gory, so mm-hmm. it's the, you know that's why I I don't think of it as a comedy. But it's not fully horror either. It is kind of like a pretty pretty decent mesh yeah. of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like Jaws. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a little suspense, mm-hmm. a little funny. Yeah. You know, but it's activity and it kind of keeps you in. Keeps you, in. Mm-hmm. you know, you can buy in easily yeah. because you like the brothers. Yeah. The mom is trying to get her life together. Yeah. And grandpa's funny. So it, you can buy in and sit and watch it and not get bored, I think. Yeah, it plays on different levels, mm-hmm. which is good. So, so. You know, I would say nine for me. Yeah, I, I'm probably more in the eight because it is rewatchable for sure, but it's not one that I would want to watch like every year. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy it. I mean, I think it's, it's I mean, it was fun to watch it again yesterday. Um, good to, to go back and watch every couple of years. But, um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. So. Yep. Well, thank you for having me, man. I enjoyed watching it. Um, I got it was entertaining um, and relaxing, actually, from the day I had before. So, <laughs> so yeah, we really, won't get into that yeah, on the podcast. No, no, no. But it was really good to watch it. And thank you for having me. Yes, thank um, you for picking this movie because I'm sure this is definitely one that I wanted to get to, and I'm sure there's other co-hosts that are probably. Uh, written a little bit because they want to do this one but I was oh, like oh I'm so sorry no, guys no, <laughs> no, but the wife wins on this one but no this was a fun one I'm glad we got to this one I know this is a fan favorite for sure a cult classic so hopefully uh, all the listeners uh, enjoyed us oh but we didn't talk about, about... <laughs> like the, the song man you got yeah. just, it just it stuck it sticks in your head man yeah that song uh, Cry Little Sister the guy who wrote that uh, wrote that song just by reading the script. He had not seen any of the movie before mm. he re- uh, wrote the song, which turned out really well. There's some story, like some stuff I read on the internet, I don't put in the notes because if I can't find it backed up by other stuff, anyway, uh, my process. But there were some things saying that like Kiefer Sutherland wanted to do the movie because of the soundtrack. Like he wanted to meet some of the bands that were going to be on mm-hmm. the soundtrack. And But uh, Schumacher, this was true, Schumacher was very instrumental in getting the music like he had a lot of the music picked out ahead of time and they used the songs while filming um, but some of the big names at the time like NXS which was a big band at that mm-hmm. time 
they weren't really big on using their songs for movies, but Schumacher made a deal that he would direct one of their music videos if they allowed him to use one of their songs in the movie. Wow. So he directed nice. several music videos after this uh, as a way to pay back, so which I thought was pretty Schumacher cool. Schumacher saved some money, honey. Oh, he yeah. was smart. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Good deal. Yeah, good, good deal. But yes, thank you so much for being a part of this episode, and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, so don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Please support the podcast if you can. Really appreciate it. And uh, tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, yeah. Share this up. Ep- if you enjoyed this episode, share it with somebody else. Another person that loves the Lost Boys, share the love. Share the episode. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's what I got. Have a Lost Boys party. There you go. <laughs> so it does have a summer feel. That's why we did it in summer. But it'll be a good one to, to pull back out in a few months when it's scary movie time in October. Oh, yeah. So. Maybe I'll watch one of the sequels. Probably not. (laughs) All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. Uh, I'm Tim Williams. Good night, good night. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.